chapter 1, verse, not Galatians, I'm sorry. First book of the Bible, Genesis. The other G one, Galatians. We talked about Galatians earlier today, I guess. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That tells us not only that God exists, but it tells us something about Him. That He is eternal, because in the beginning He was already there. It tells us that He is all-powerful, because He is the Creator of all that is. And then it tells us that He is the supreme authority over all that exists. And not only that, but the rest of Genesis 1, and on into chapter 2, and then on throughout all the Holy Scripture, we see that this eternal, all-powerful, sovereign God not only exists, but He is active in His creation. And He has revealed Himself to mankind. This God not only exists, but He has spoken. And if this God exists, and if He is who He is, and if He has spoken to us, then it is our greatest responsibility in life and our greatest joy and privilege to study what He has said so that we might know Him. Can you believe that? The Almighty God, the Creator of the ends of the earth, wants us to know Him and to love Him and to obey Him and to serve Him. Friends, that is the meaning of life. That we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the purpose for which we exist. This is the key to happiness. And it is to this revealed Word of God, the eternal God, that we now turn our attention. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. At its most basic level, Scripture is one big unified story. It is the story of redemption. The story of how God, the Creator, is glorifying Himself in His creation and through the redemption, the salvation of His people, and the restoration of the world that He has made. And in this big story, the book of Genesis is, if you will, the front matter to that story. It is the introduction of how it all began and why it is the way it is. The book of Genesis, as I see it, divides into three basic sections. First, we could call it the record of primeval history. That is, the history of the origin of the world as a whole. How it came into being, what's wrong with the world, how it was designed to function, how it is going to be made right. We find all of that in chapters 1 through 11. The second section we could call the record of patriarchal history. 
That is the next step in the story in which this, the, the focus zooms in onto one man and his family as the agents through which God would reveal himself to the rest of the world and through which God would bring the Savior, the promised Savior, into the world. That is the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is the origin of the nation of Israel. And we find that in chapters 12 through 36. And then the third section, there is the life of the sons of Jacob. Specifically, Joseph. And the removal of God's people from the promised land to the land of Egypt. And it is in this section that we find the growth of God's people from beyond just one local family to an entire nation. And that signals yet another stage in the story of redemption found in Scripture. And we read all of that in chapters 37 through 50. My intention in studying through the book of Genesis has not been to do it in one giant sermon series, but to do it according to those three volumes, if you will. So last year, June through November, we looked at volume 1, chapters 1 through 11. We saw there God's perfect creation of all things in chapters 1 and 2. But then we saw the rejection of God's command, and we saw the rebellion of mankind in chapter 3. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we saw a contrast between the ungodly lineage of Cain and the godly lineage of Seth. One line growing deeper into sin, while the other remaining devoted to God and worshiping Him. But then in chapters 6 through 9, we saw the culmination of man's sinfulness. Mankind had become thoroughly corrupt, so God completely wipes out the entire planet and all of its population with a catastrophic, literal, universal flood. He only saves one man with his wife and his three sons and their wives, eight people in total, whom God sovereignly set apart and rescued from that judgment. And at that point, we might have expected that the conflict was over and sin had been defeated. But we learn very quickly that those who came through the flood on the ark brought their sin natures with them. And in a very short time, we find mankind once again thoroughly corrupt. And so in chapters 10 and 11, we see this degeneration of man once again, this time culminating in Babel, which was not just a project of engineering and construction. It was an organized effort of mankind to make something of himself completely independently of the God who made them. And yet all the while we are holding on to a thread of hope as we are seeing little glimpses along the way, even in the darkness of men, we are seeing little glimpses along the way that God has not forgotten His original promise. The promise He made way back in chapter, chapter 3, verse 15, in the cursing of the earth, where He gives even there a glimpse of hope that a deliverer would come and would reverse the curse and would rescue His people from their sins. And that brings us now to volume 2 of our study in the book of Genesis, beginning in chapter 12. Here the, the focus zooms way in 
no longer looking at the world at large, but now viewing one man, one man and his descendants, one family set apart by God from the rest of the world to be the people through whom God would fulfill his promise, through whom God would send the Messiah and save his people from their sins. We got a taste of it at the end of chapter 11. And then now into chapter 12, we are introduced to the man Abram, who would later be called Abraham, who is the patriarch of Israel, the one through whom God promises to bless the nations. And today we begin volume two of our study in Genesis by looking at the call of God to Abraham. Then we look at his response of faith, and we consider what it means for us today. So our text this morning is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, if you'll follow along as I read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and, all, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And Bethel, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. What we see in this text is a response of faith to the call of God. God calls his people, and his people respond. And what's more, we see here also a reassuring and exciting picture of what God is up to in the world as his redemptive plan takes another step. And we see the mission of God and what he is up to both then and and now setting aside a people unto himself and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the world. Yes, even here. Very simply this morning, I want us to look at this text from two basic vantage points. First of all, the call of God. And then secondly, the response of faith. The call of God and the response of of faith. Let's consider first then the call of God. This passage begins 
with God speaking to Abram and issuing a serious call, a life-altering call. I want us to notice some things about this call of God that reveal the character of God, reveal what he might be up to. Because the call of God on Abram's life, as we'll see, is almost a foreshadowing or a very close resemblance of the call of the gospel on all of God's people. And so I want us to notice, first of all, the surprise of the call, the surprise of this call of God. Look at the first part of verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Whenever you see in your translation the word Lord printed in all capital letters, the Hebrew word there is Yahweh. This is the name that God had given to his people to call him, by which he is to be known. This is the name of the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. This is the name God gives to his covenant people. And whenever... We see that name. We need to stop and consider the magnitude of what that name is telling us about him. And here we see Yahweh said to Abram. It strikes me how unexpected it would be for God to speak to anyone in the world that we left off in chapter 11. Have you ever thought about that? What a contrast to the first 11 chapters of of Scripture. It has been a downward spiral ever since Genesis 3. And by the time we get to chapter 11, we find that mankind is so desperately wicked and so rebellious against God that there is very little, if any, hope for the future left. And Abram himself, where is Abram when this happens? He is in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, an important city in Mesopotamia that was prosperous and populated and pagan. Abram likely was a moon worshiper in a city filled with moon worshipers, practicing their religion in any number of immoral and brutal idolatrous ways and rituals. And in this dark place, in the midst of this dark world, it is to this man that God speaks. Don't underestimate how amazing that is. Why would God do that? After all the sin and all the rebellion that we read about in chapters 3 through 11, why would God want to have any more interest in mankind at this point? Chapter 11 should have been the end of the world. But here, God speaks. Why would he want to connect with this world in any way other than utter destruction? You want to know the answer? You'll have to ask him one day. Because I can't answer the question. I don't know. Except to say this. That is the wonder of God's grace. 
That's it. And it is the wonder of His mercy that while man is hopelessly lost in darkness, God demonstrates His love and His mercy and His grace by reaching down to man and making a way of salvation, a way to be reconciled to Him. That is the unspeakable wonder and majesty of the gospel. Without it, we have no hope. Now with that in mind, that's the surprise of this call. Let's consider secondly the nature of this call. Look at the last part of verse 1. When God spoke to Abram, he said, Go from your country, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. What do we see? This is a call. This isn't God just imparting information. This is God calling Abram to something. Not only does he speak, but he calls. And what do we see about this call here? Well, for one thing, I think we see that it is a sovereign call. It is a call that is initiated by God himself. That's an important point that comes up over and over and over again throughout Scripture. Whether it is in the creation of the world or in the new creation of his people through regeneration, God is always the initiator. Man does not seek after God in his own nature, on his own. God seeks after man. He is the author of salvation, and he is the finisher of salvation, sovereign and active from beginning to end. So it is a sovereign call. But next, we also see that this call is a moving call. What do I mean by that? It is a moving call. It is a call to depart and to travel. God says, go. And when he says go, he means from one place to another. And that has practical implications for his family and for his daily life. This was a call that demanded action and response. It was not just a declaration of something. It was a divine summons. God's call is always a divine summons. One preacher explained it this way, the callings of God never leave a man where they find him. And to stay put when God calls is indeed to move backward. God's call is a moving call. We also see that this call is a comprehensive call. A comprehensive call. God doesn't say, allow me to come alongside and tag along. He says, go from your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house. This call was to leave his land, his family, and his home. He is to leave it all behind. And once again, God's call on the lives of his people is always this way. Now, Understand what I'm saying. That doesn't mean that God's call always means that we are going to sever every earthly relationship and relinquish every earthly good. In fact, we read later that Abram took his stuff with him when he went. 
That's not what this is getting at, but it does mean this, that there is no such thing as a partial call. God is no one's assistant, and there is no partial call. There is no such thing as a partial commitment to the Lord. It is all or nothing. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Why? For whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a comprehensive call. There is nothing that takes precedence over following him. It is a comprehensive call. Another thing that we see here, very ironically, is what I'm going to call an indeterminate call. I couldn't think of a better word, and I used a thesaurus. I was going to say vague, but it makes it sound like God didn't really know where he was calling him to, and that's not what this is getting at. God knew exactly what was going on, but Abram didn't. Did you catch that? God doesn't tell him where he's going to go. Abram, I want you to leave your family, your home, and your land behind and start work, start traveling. And I'll tell you where to go when you get there. Would any of you do that? You see great wisdom. Would any of you counsel your children to do that? Go to the land I will show you. And here we see in this indeterminate call that the authority of God's call over his people is not found in the earthly details. Obedience to the call of God in our lives is not based on the earthly destination. God gives no guarantee that Abram's life is going to be better. In fact, the things he promises him, Abram doesn't even see in his lifetime for the most part. God doesn't promise him an easy, easy life. He always lived in a tent. God doesn't promise him that he will get richer, though he was already prosperous. None of that was the basis for the call or for Abram's obedience. But it was simply because it was Yahweh giving the call. That was enough motivation for Abram to get up and go. That is what a response of faith looks like. It's not just indiscriminate foolishness on our part. But when God has given a direction, there ought to be nothing that stands in our way. Right? That's faith. As we'll see in a few moments. Following God because He's God. And we trust Him. Lord, I don't need to know what tomorrow brings. I'm in your hands. And so the nature of this call then is incredibly serious. It is a sovereign call from God Himself. It is a moving call requiring obedience and action. It is a, a comprehensive call involving every part of Him and everything that He has and it is an indeterminate call, demanding faith and trust in God alone for obedience. But this call also comes with a promise, and a spectacular one at that. And so in verses 2 and 3, 
we see the promise of the call. The surprise, the nature, now the promise of the call. God says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You can tell me how much of that Abram really understood at that moment. The one man with a wife and a nephew. Now, some of you are already familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, which is a significant stage in the story of God's redemption throughout Scripture. This is not the Abrahamic covenant yet. That comes in chapter 15. But the nuts and bolts of it are right here. God's promise to Abram here is a sort of foreshadowing of the covenant he will later make with him, and it involves three basic components, land, seed, blessing, or as one preacher helpfully put it, people, place, protection, and program. People, place, protection, program. God had already told him in verse 1 to go to a new land. That's the place part, the land. Then God says here, I will make of you a great nation. That's the people part, the seed or the descendants. Abram, from you will come a great number of descendants that will become a nation. Then he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. That's the protection part. And then the point of it all, God says, I will bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You will be a blessing. Make no mistake, God is promising a blessing and he is calling him to bless. Not just to soak, but to serve. That's the essence of what's going on here. And this is the plan God has for Abram here and far beyond. In other words, I will bless you and you because of my blessing, will turn and be a blessing to the rest of the world, to all the nations. And so we see that truly, indeed, though all hope seems to be lost, God clearly is remaining faithful to His promises and His plan to glorify Himself in this world and to save His people from their sins. That plan is still intact. God is sovereignly and in great mercy and grace, calling and moving Abram to be the one through whom he would establish the family line and the national identity of the Messiah himself, the one who would be the Savior of the world, our Jesus Christ. But there's a problem. There always seems to be a problem in God's plan, right? A threat. Something that stands in the way of God fulfilling His promise. And what's more, it always seems to be that God's the one who creates the problem. Who puts the threat in its place. I've said it before. God seems to love making it as difficult as possible for Himself to fulfill His own promises. And then He loves to blow away all expectations and fulfill His promises in a way that only He can get the credit and the glory. It's over and over and over again in Scripture. 
Or as one commentator put it, God's way is to preface his great works with extreme difficulties. We should never be shaken or discouraged when God calls in a way that seems impossible to us. That is the time for faith and trust. Well, this call to Abram is no different. In verses 6 and 7, we see the impossibility of this call. Here's what we read. Abram passed through the land, so he obeys, he goes, comes to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Say, what's the problem in that? So there's actually two significant problems. Did you notice that there's this statement at the end of verse 6 that says, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. And you're thinking, well, it's the land of Canaan. Who else would be in the land? But are you catching what's going on here? God takes Abram into a land that is already populated by nations of people. Canaan wasn't one nation, it was many. And he says, it's going to be yours. Um, problem, this land is already inhabited by someone else, by several nations, and I don't think they're going to just give it up without a fight. And God is promising this one man and his kids that it's going to belong to them? Impossible. Second problem is even more fundamental. God promises this land to Abraham and whom? His offspring. Um, what offspring? He has no kids. And now, according to verse 4, he's 75 years old. And what's even worse is according to chapter 11, verse 30, when we read about his wife, we find out she's barren. She has no children. And God is promising that their descendants will populate and conquer this land? Impossible. But God's call is never based on man's ability. And just because you can't see a way out doesn't mean God can't create one. God's call is never based on man's ability or man's wisdom or man's circumstances. It is always founded upon his sovereign power, his sovereign authority, and his sovereign plan. This plan, this call certainly is impossible by man's standards. There's no way. But this isn't man's call. It's God's. And this isn't man's plan. It's God's. And this isn't man's power at work. It is God's. And when God is at work, nothing is impossible. And when the sovereign God calls, there is no need to fear, but every reason for faith, trust, and obedience. That brings us to consider the second vantage point of this text. First was the call of God. Now let's consider the response of faith. How did Abram respond to such a surprising, life-altering, all-consuming, inexplicable call from God. He responded with faith in God, trusting Him 
and taking him at his word. Now again, this is a sovereign call. It has to be. Why? Because how does a moon-worshipping pagan just turn around and believe a God he's never seen? A God he's never known. Well, Scripture teaches us in many ways, many places, that that too is only a sovereign work that God can accomplish. Where God calls, He must grant faith. And where God calls, He does grant faith. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, right? It's not just the salvation that's a gift of God. It is the faith that is a gift of God. Otherwise, we never would believe. And this faith that Abram displays demonstrates itself, is, is, is communicated and, and put on display in four ways. The first way is in simple obedience. Simple obedience. You see this in verse 4. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him. That's it. He did as Yahweh had said because Yahweh had said it. Now, I don't know what all went through Abram's mind during this time. I, I can't imagine he didn't have questions. I can't imagine there was something in his soul that sort of was nervous or, or maybe even hesitant. Or I, I can't imagine there were no concerns on his mind, but none of that seems to factor into his decision. None of that held him back. Yahweh told him what to do, and because it was Yahweh who said it, Abram obeyed. That's amazing. That's faith. You say, no, that's works. No, it's faith. Because he believed in God, he was happy to do whatever he said, not even knowing what it was going to mean. And the rest is just details. I don't know where I'm going to end up, but God knows. I'll worry about that when I get there. And so we read, and Lot went with him. That's Abram's nephew. We met him in chapter 11, verse 27. We'll come back to him in later passages. And then we read, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, you may see the reference to Haran and ask, wait, I thought you said Abram was in Ur. So which is it? Because those aren't the same places. Well, he was in Ur when God called him. He's in Haran when he picks up and leaves in Genesis 12. Wait, what? how's that work out? Okay. Abram started out in Ur when God had originally called him. Then in chapter 11, we see that they set out together with Abram's father, Terah, and they go and they settle in Haran until Terah passes away. And then when Terah is dead, God urges Abram to go on and continue the journey. You say, that sounds far-fetched. Maybe it does. But you know how I know this is what happened? Because Deacon Stephen said so in the last sermon he ever preached in Acts chapter 7. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. 
And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. God said, get up and go, and I'll tell you where to stay. I'll bet he told them to stay in Haran, and they settled down. And then when Terah died, God said, get up, go. It's time to finish the journey. And they come into Canaan. But the point is this. Whatever questions or fears or concerns Abram had about what God was calling him to do may have been real and reasonable, but they did not keep him from simple obedience. He doesn't argue like Moses does in Exodus chapter 3. He just obeys. He believes God. He trusts Him to take care of the details. That's faith. What's more, this faith shows itself not just in simple obedience, but in total commitment. We talked about a comprehensive call. Well, he responds in total commitment, comprehensive commitment. Look at verse 5. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Apparently, Abram was a wealthy and prosperous man. He had possessions and he had people, or servants, employees, people that he had picked up to serve in the, the herds that Abram owned. This would have been a large and noticeable group of people and a huge collection of stuff. I've even heard it suggested that there could have been upwards of 100 people in this caravan. That's a big group. Abram took it all with him. And you say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus said we're supposed to leave it all behind. Why didn't he leave it all behind? Well, consider this. Following Christ has never been about how much or how little we possess. It's all about who possesses us. Abram was already following the word of the Lord. And in this case, consider this. Taking everything with him left him nothing to return to. This was a one-way ticket. There's no going back. He's walking out into this new land with no intention to going back. And everything he had and everything he was is committed to Yahweh. So, in Abram's faith, we see simple obedience and total commitment and then at the beginning of verse 7, we see a divine assurance that God gives to him. We read, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. In verses 5 and 6, we see Abram traveling into the land of Canaan. Now, in the land, God appears to him. Earlier, we're told that Yahweh just spoke to him. Now we're told... He appears, and he says, this land, this land on which you stand, turn around, look, as far as the eye can see, I will give it to you and to your descendants. And here, God reveals to Abram the land that he merely spoke of in verse 1, and he gives this divine reassurance, this, this assurance to Abram that, that God is completely trustworthy and he will perform all that he has promised. See, you're here. And I will give it to you. How do, I, how do you know I will give it to you? Because you've just seen me lead you to this point. 
And then as a sort of crown on the head of this simple obedience and total commitment and divine assurance, we see Abram's faith shine forth in what I'll call shameless worship. Shameless worship. What do I mean by that? Look at the second part of verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Shechem is essentially the center of the promised land. And there he came to this tree called Morah, which is a recurring landmark throughout Genesis. The word means teacher. And several scholars have suggested that this was a prominent place, uh, perhaps, of, of pagan teaching and worship. It wouldn't be surprising if that were the case, because that's how pagan worship often worked in a place like that, out in the, away from the city and, and under the trees and that sort of thing. Now, here's where he's gone. Now look at the end of verse 7. So he built there an altar to Yahweh, who had appeared to him. Verse 8, from there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel. It wasn't called Bethel yet, but it would become Bethel. An already populated city full of pagan worshipers. Um, and, and on the west, uh, or Bethel was on the west, and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. In verse 9, Abram continued the journey, still going on toward the Negev, still traveling south. So he's come all the way through the promised land. And wherever he goes, he builds an altar. Now, he's not dwelling within the population centers. There's too many people, too, too much livestock for him to do that. He's on the outskirts. He's in the wilderness areas. But it's a big enough group of people and stuff that it's going to be noticeable. They know who he is when he's coming through. And this place of pagan teaching and worship, starting at Morah and then moving on down through the promised land, Abram builds an altar to Yahweh. And worships him. One altar at Shechem. Another altar between Bethel and Ai. And what is he doing there? He is calling upon the name of the Lord. Now some have suggested that that, word, that phrase called upon should actually be translated proclaimed. And in truth it could be translated that way. But either way by the worship of this large group, by the outward proclamation of Yahweh, or, or, or even both of those together, Abram praises and proclaims the name of Yahweh while completely surrounded by a vile pagan culture. His faith had led him to trust, had led him to obedience, had led him to boldness in his serving of the Lord. He has held nothing back from him. Now, his faith will falter in the next passage. Abraham is a man. He struggles, and we'll see that. But in following Yahweh, he holds nothing back. God surprisingly speaks to Abram, offering uh, sovereignly and effectively calling him to leave everything he has ever known and to travel to a land as yet to be revealed and in doing so, he calls him to trust only in the word of the Lord. And seemingly without hesitation, Abram 
believes God. And because he believes God, he obeys simply and totally and unashamedly. And the fact that he worships shows us that his obedience was not just a duty, it was a delight to him. It was a consecration to God alone. And all of this in the context of a book of the Bible that was written to show who God really is, to show what He is really up to in the world, to prepare God's people to follow Him confidently into the land that He has promised them. And this has implications not just for Abram and his biological family, nor does it have implications merely for the nation of Israel who left Egypt and came in and possessed the land once again. But this has implications for all who in Christ can rightfully be called the people of God. Because the Apostle Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, this. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, which, by the way, Abram was a Gentile until God made him otherwise. The Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And here's Paul's commentary. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So much so that Paul makes the point here and in the book of Romans that those who are in Christ are the spiritual children of Abraham. This is our God. This is our God's call on our lives as well. And so the call of God to Abram is a sort of picture of the call of the gospel to all people. It is a call to those who are lost and hopeless, perishing in the darkness of their sin. Is that not you? Is that not me? It is a call of mercy and grace given by the sovereign and almighty God, maker of heaven and earth. It is a comprehensive call to leave all and follow him. It is first and foremost a call to faith and trust that God knows what is best, that God does what is best, and God leads his people into what is best. And so it is a call to simple obedience, to simple faith that expresses itself in simple obedience and total commitment and unreserved worship. You see, friends, it doesn't take much to follow God. It just takes everything you have and everything you are. Are you willing to follow God in this way? What is it that's holding you back? What's that one thing that you're trying to hang on to? Are you willing to trust the Lord 
with everything that you are and everything that you have. He is worthy, and He is worth it. The call God gave to Abram has not really changed over the years to His people. It's the same call to all of us today. The call that Yahweh would have the place of supreme affection and devotion in our lives. Have you heard the call of God? Are you responding in saving faith? The blessing that God promises to Abram is not ultimately a blessing of something merely earthly. The blessing that God promises to Abram that will bless all the nations finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the promised Savior, who is the Son of Abraham, who is the Son of God. And that title, Son of God, that's not telling us that he's a descendant of God or that he's a lesser being. It's telling us that he is indeed the very image of God himself. Colossians 1 tells us that. Hebrews 1 tells us that. He is the exact imprint. He is the exact manifestation of God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus Christ. You want to follow God? Follow Christ. He is the one who lived a perfect life in our place and died a sinner's death in our place so that in him we might be saved from our sins. We need to be saved from our sins. God in his sovereignty has mercifully given us a a way to be saved from our sins and to be reconciled to himself. And it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And anyone, everyone, yes, you, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you.